Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Special announcement before we get into this fantastic episode, and this really is a good one. Feel like I've been on a bit of a streak uh, lately. Just really, really terrific uh, communicators of science. I think you're going to dig it. Um, I wanted to let you know that we have a, a special thing we've been putting together over on my other world, Mind Under Matter. Uh, with me and Ramin Nazer, we are doing a Mind Under Matter campout slash festival thing. Uh, what it is depends on uh, how many people are interested and in sign up. We're in the early stages of planning it, but I can tell you what we know so far. It's going to be a mix of comedy and science communication and art and uh, a collection of all the eclectic uh, individuals that listen to all of our uh, podcasts. We'll do a live Here We Are There. I'll get some people from Duke uh, to come out. Uh, if you want to hear more about it, even if you aren't a fan of or you haven't heard of, uh, you'd be a fan if you have heard it. Um, but if you haven't heard Mind Under Matter, um, or you aren't a regular listener, check out the St. Patrick's Day episode where we talk all about it. It was inspired by uh, a International Mind Under Matter Day episode that we did. We had uh, some people reach out to us and things just started falling into place. And we have this amazing uh, place that uh, is like, uh, it does... Uh, a big yurt retreat pl place with y acres and acres, huge private lake, everything else. Uh, incredible opportunity came up and, and we pretty much get to make it whatever we want. Uh, it can be a, anywhere from a 50 person camp out and intimate way to meet Ramin and I and, and uh, other listeners of our shows uh, to uh, which already looks like we're going to, uh, be doing something bigger than uh, that, but uh, scaling up to as, as many there's there's room for a thousand people could come and camp out. It's going to be a thing where you're allowed to uh, where you're able to camp out. It'll be a, a three day event, Friday through Sunday, um, where you can stay till Monday if you want. Uh, you don't have to stay all of the days. There's going to be a special thing on on Thursday. Uh, a special bonus option potentially. So maybe mark your calendar for September 8th through 12th. Go to mindunderpod.com. You'll see a festival tab right on the top where you can go and enter your email for more details being sent out soon. But it's just going to be a really fun, cool way to meet a bunch of uh, like-minded people and listeners of the show. We're going to do some live recordings there. There's an enormous, awesome stage uh, with with tons of seating. There's a frisbee golf course there. There's going to be paddle boarding, all sorts of amazing stuff. We have the whole place to ourselves. It's just can't believe the luck. It's going to be really affordable. And if you don't want to camp there, which you'll be able to bring your stuff and camp for free, um, uh, you know, we're just going to have a ticket price. But we're also going to have uh, 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 probably a yurt company or uh, a, uh, a glamping company come and set up like uh, glamorous camping for those that want to 
um, pay a little extra and are maybe flying in or whatever else. And also it's, it just happens to be this enormous property, um, 20 minutes from downtown Raleigh. So you could stay at a hotel, uh, Airbnb, whatever else, if, if camping, um, doesn't, uh, doesn't suit you, but we're going to do live podcasts during the day and a bunch of fun activities and then um, music at night and and really putting an emphasis on, we have a ton of artists uh, in our community, especially on Mind Under Matter. Uh, so we're going to have a bunch of people from the community out there live painting and doing all sorts of uh, cool stuff like that. So you might want to check out those episodes, even if you don't regularly listen to Mind Under Matter, St. Patrick's Day, the one that just came out where uh, uh, we we discuss some of the early bits of it. And we've been expanding as the show goes on, but it's something that we'll be able to build um, together uh, and and scale up. You know, we already it's it's a place that already does some smaller uh, festivals too, so we can easily easily scale up and add various things as as interest is there. We may also do a Mind Under Matter tour um, during that uh, time, a little run around the southeast. In fact, I shouldn't say that I guarantee we will because we're still sorting out some details. The uh, but the the campout slash festival is is uh is definitely happening um and most likely we're going to do like a little eight city 10 city tour of mind under matter at that time so i know people have been wondering when are you going to tour when are you going to do live shows this is even better than that not only will you get to come and see and we'll do some uh stand up and you'll get to see this this and our other podcasts live and get to meet um you know various uh guests and scientists and stuff you'll get to meet us you'll get to meet other people in the community but you'll also just get to hang out have fun i i picked the i i pretty much got my pick of of uh, uh of uh pretty much any time of year that i wanted to put this um together and uh i i picked the time that was the furthest out that the weather would still be ideal. So it's it's warm enough uh, to still get in the water at that time and not not so hot that it's uncomfortable to sleep at night. There's facilities there. There's there's kitchens um, that can be used. It's a whole it's uh, it's imagine taking over just like a very, very upscale campground or something. And then take that idea and add a little more to it because it's it's better than just some upscale um, campground. I've done a lot of camping in my life. It's a dream location. And I've been talking with people that do similar things for a while and um, talking with people that run various other festivals and stuff. And everyone's, everyone's pumped about it. And we're getting it all together and can't wait to continue to plan. So once again, mindunderpod.com com uh go to the festival tab and uh, check that out 
uh, extra long intro today because I'm so excited to tell you all about this, but I'm also excited for you guys to hear this episode. It's a real good one. Enjoy. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I have a return guest coming to you from NYU. Uh, he did stand-up science. He, he he was on Here We Are in 2019. Also did um, stand-up science in a, a venue that no longer exists, the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, one a, of the finest. Pre-pandemic, right? That was before the pandemic, yeah. I'm, so, I'm sorry, am I not supposed to be talking at the beginning? I don't. Yeah, I no, you can talk. No, this is fine. <laughs> okay. uh, I, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Shane. So glad to be here. I <laughs> I had to have I had to have Itai um, uh, re- remind me. My listeners are really used to how bad I am at pronouncing names. It's like a running joke on the show. But I had so for listeners, I had to have Itai remind me how to pronounce his name, and uh, and then he's like, it rhymes, <laughs> and then and then. What did you say? You asked your parents? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's like a good tip to tell people it rhymes and they can remember how to pronounce yeah. my name. But then, yeah, I I, uh, I asked my parents, did, did you know that when you were calling me Itai, that it rhymes with Yanai? And they're like, huh? Oh, no, we, we never noticed that. <laughs> never, <laughs> never noticed. That's this. absolutely incredible. Were you the first child or were you like? I was the, 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 I was the first. I was the center of their attention. But I, I think what I was imagining happening was that, <laughs> you know, you're in a maternity ward. There's a lot going on. A little detail like that can escape you. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Um, so, so why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners, uh, uh, give them a bit of your background and what you do. Uh, Let's just go ahead and presume, um, either people didn't hear the episode three years ago or it's been three years and they've forgotten. So sure. Sure. Okay. So like you said, I'm a professor at NYU. I do research on gene regulation, how genes come on and off and, and, we're doing that in the context of cancer biology, but also bacterial infections. We're using the latest and greatest tools, uh, some of which we've uh, helped to develop. And it's it's kind of like this uh, great adventure because it involves computational biology, experimental biology, systems, everything everything that we can marshal to understand gene expression we, we use. Um, that's my research. I'm, I'm originally from Israel, uh, and uh, uh, I've been in New York City for almost six years, and it's been a lot of fun. Nice. Um, <laughs> I so I don't even remember what all we talked about um, last time. But could you give people a little bit? We we don't talk a ton about genetics on the show, um, not nearly as much as we should, mostly because I took a genetics course online once and it was fascinating and I loved it. And I was also like, 
wow, genetics is hard. <laughs> and, yeah. And I, there's so there's a lot going on. And um, and and so it, we, we haven't done tons of one on one stuff on this show. I would love to do a one on one. And you know what? It gets to the core of what got me interested in genetics. And that is a book <laughs> that's become notorious to, for some people, famous for other people. It's called The Selfish Gene by mm. Richard Dawkins. And I read it right as I was finishing undergrad. Uh, I was uh, about to get my degree in engineering and also in philosophy. And I was cons debating what to do, engineering or philosophy, what should be my future. And then I read this book and it totally changed my direction. I was like, this is what I want to study. And the reason was because I was just so fascinated by, uh, I, I mean, I remember when I was an undergrad, but what would constantly keep me awake at night and what troubled me so much was that we all just walk around through this world as though it's the most natural thing, right? Like, we're just like, yeah, you know, we know what we're doing. <laughs> when, when, when you think about it, what is going on here? Like, seriously, <laughs> That's what? what I ask myself right? every day. Every right? Day. Like, what? Seriously, you like what? <laughs> why are we here? What is it? And I was, you know, when you're an undergrad, you're in this phase where you're like trying to explore the world. And that's yeah. the best part about undergrad. And no one could give me an answer about what is going Like, seriously, what is going on? I didn't, I just wanted to know. And here was, here was a book. The Selfish Team was a book that just told yeah. you what's going on. And it told it to you with like the most lucid uh, manner. And it was just so as soon as you read it, you're like, oh, my God, this has to be true. Yeah. And and I so I bought into it completely. I have to say, I reread that book recently and it's still awesome. It's still there's not a single mistake that I can find in it. The logic is impeccable. And OK, so what is that logic? The logic is like, why are we here? This is the world that genes built. Mm -hmm. That's why genetics is actually should be like the most interesting thing for people, because it tells us why we're here. And uh, we're here because the genes are are uh, replicating and they are here because they have survived. It's, it's, it sounds like a tautology, but it's really not. Uh, and they're constantly evolving new mechanisms of, of surviving. And lo and behold, one amazing mechanism for these replicators surviving is us. We're just here to make babies as some of us might have already figured out even without reading The Selfish Gene. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, The Selfish Gene really tells you the logic. And of course, it's it's not that Richard Dawkins discovered this. It's more that he's explaining what uh, Charles Darwin uh, first put forth. And um, that's what got me into genetics. I mean, Darwin didn't have access to near the amount of information because it was, I mean, that was like before Mendel and everything. So that was right. Yeah. So he, he didn't have, he didn't, he didn't have access to, to kind of the nitty gritty of the mechanisms that, that That's Dawkins true. did when he well, was able to, which well, that book know, is absolutely fantastic, by the way. It is. Yeah. You, well, you know, it, it, you say, Darwin was before Mendel. What's interesting about that is that they were actually contemporaries. So, oh. And, and it was found in Darwin's papers that he actually had Mendel's paper on his desk. Uh, or maybe I'm exaggerating. It wasn't on his desk, but it was in his library. Uh, I, I can't remember. But he had it. He just, 
uh, together with the entire scientific community of his time, ignored it. Everybody ignored it, even mm-hmm. though it held the, the the secret to one of the, the biggest problems of Darwin's ideas. Uh, right. But I, I guess I should say he wasn't accessing those. He wasn't accessing. Ideas. That, that would, have, would have explained a lot for him. So, Shane, you read The Selfish Gene. What did you think about it? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, I, I've, I read... Um, I also read... Um, Blind Watchmaker? No, the... Uh, something God like um the oh the magic of reality um oh, is, is I, really good because that, that was great that, with the myths that goes right? back through like the that that it, I, I really it was really kind of impactful i think that was one that made me think about evolution in terms of just the universe as well in terms of like right from the moment of the big bang and and afterwards yeah. there was stable and unstable elements and there's not not anything necessarily like better or worse about being an unstable element it's just we happen to be here because stable elements are the ones that stuck around and right. and um made the fabric of reality that we're familiar with and and so uh to to think about evolution as a process that that happens not not just in terms of uh the the bits of life on planet earth um was was something that was impactful for me as well and then i uh but yeah he has a funny sense of humor you know he got snarkier over time i think because he got attacked so much by so many people that he got a little dug in but he always had like a pretty good sense of humor especially a period for a period of time in my life that I was a I was a little more into uh that I I became I I I felt like I felt like Dawkins never um never hit on the utility the evolved emergent utility of religion um like he yeah. he potentially could have explored um I know what you mean. I think he he I think he does get it. It's just that he kind of um I think he has a bone to pick with the way some religion religions get like a free ride. I don't know, like they don't have to pay taxes and, and other, yeah, yeah. other organizations do and uh and I think also my my kind of impression of, of Dawkins and I had a meeting with him, it was it was interesting, but I think he he genuinely wants people to to get it like he really he really yeah. wants people to understand guys this is why we're here like he so he's yeah, kind yeah. of a missionary in that sense but i think yeah. it comes from a good place um, yeah yeah i i think so too i i i will say i i remember trying to read i need to take another crack at the extended phenotype because oh, yeah. when i started reading it i don't know eight years ago or something like that i think i was in Australia, I was like drinking a fair amount at the time and trying to, I remember like being at a cafe with wine, trying to read the extended <laughs> phenotype and getting to places where I'm like, wait, what's happening? And, <laughs> and getting a that little one, lost in the complexity. I love that book. I think yeah. that book, because some people will say, well, you know, maybe maybe someone is talking to Richard and they're saying, you know, Richard, what does it matter if you're thinking about it from the genes point of view that the genes want to survive or you're looking at it inversely from the organism point of view and then the organism just has some genes and it uses the genes to reproduce but it's really 
It's really individual centric. And with the extended phenotype, he shows, no, it's not a semantic uh, argument that we're making here. It really yes. does matter. They're really, you really do get uh, to explain things that you wouldn't be able to explain otherwise if you look at it from the genes point of view. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was uh, a great argument, but most people found it kind of a tough reading. And I think even though, I mean, it seemed useful. There, there's some books like that. You ever, you ever read a book that like you, you start kind of giving up on and then you, you're walking around and like two weeks later, some things start clicking into place and then then you're like, Oh, I got to go back. Like yeah. the book, um, chaos, uh, oh, by Gleek, James Gleek. Yeah. It was, it was a little bit like that for me where there'd be parts where I'm like, why am I even reading this? <laughs> I'm like getting frustrated. And then I would be out walking on a beach or something and be like, Oh, now I get it. And, and then yeah, I would go back true. to it. True. Yeah. Maybe it's a reflection of how deep the book is that you read a little bit and then it has to like kind of sink mm-hmm. in. And then what you're referring to is probably like your subconscious coming back and saying, you know, we've thought about it in the background while you've been doing things and we want to let you know, we think that book is actually onto something. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I got to I got to fill more of my background stuff with with things like that. Um, yeah, I, I what uh, can can you explain to me? The idea of the um, the extended phenotype and and oh, what yeah. that term means. Yeah. So he says that uh, we often think about the genes influencing how the organism is built, mm-hmm. right? And that's why some might think, well, you could just look at it inversely that the organism has some genes. But he says, no, 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 no. These genes, these replicators, if you think about it, they don't have to uh, observe a boundary between the individual and its inv- and the environment. The genes, they can actually extend their phenotype. They can influence not just what the organism is doing, but beyond it. So mm-hmm. he gives this example. This is great, crazy. Well, he gives a number of crazy examples. One is, let's say, uh, we're talking about beavers and the way beavers build a dam. So... Uh, you know, the beaver has genes and the the genes have built the the beaver, the animal, but because the beaver is also building a dam and because uh, that behavior of building the dam is under genetic control, you can think about it so that there could be a mutation in one of the genes of the beaver. And because of that mutation, that beaver is now building a dam that's of a slightly different uh, architecture. So now you've got like a gene for the architecture of this dam. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe there's like two, two alleles in the population of beavers and they're sort of fighting it out. Like what, you know, natural selection, which allele is better, which architecture is better. So here's a, here's a gene. It happens to be in a beaver, but it's exerting an effect on a whole lake and what the dam situation is for that lake. So the, the, the way to think about the architecture of the dam is that it's an extended phenotype. It's under genetic control of genes that just happen to be in a beaver. And yeah. Uh, and then he talks about like host pathogen interactions where sometimes there's, there's like a, 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 a uh, 
I forget the name of the pathogen, but it, it, it goes into a bird and it will go into the, the brain of the bird. So now you've got a pathogen in the brain of the bird and it's actually like pulling the strings and as the bird is flying, the, the pathogen is controlling in which direction the bird flies. So it's as though the pathogen has genes for controlling the behavior of the bird. And so the, the flight pattern of the bird is the extended phenotype of the genes that are in the pathogen. Mm, and yeah. so you only, and, and then this, this makes sense only if you have a, a gene centered point of view, there's no way to explain everything that we've just said about the beavers and the pathogen. If, if you're looking at it from the organism's point of view, and only if you look at it from the genes point of view, that's his Dawkins big argument is that you need to think about life as replication by genes mm -hmm. and and the individuals just being a kind of survival survival machine he calls it like a uh, an agent of replication yeah um I'm, I'm curious what your take is because uh as, as someone that's uh i'm a big believer in the selfish gene point of view I'm, I'm sure a lot of my listeners this and especially my mind under matter podcast where i'm not talking with a guest and just trying to get everything out of my head that i know i i have a selfish gene point of view but there's there was a i'm curious what you think about i know group selection pretty much completely went away for a long period of time and then and I feel like it's starting to bubble up a little bit again in terms of, yeah. again, I don't know if it's like a semantic kind of idea that we're talking about or uh, yeah. do you have any thoughts about, you know, I, I recently read this book called uh, the genes Eye view of evolution. And it's a really good summary of the whole 40 year uh, history of science since the publication of the selfish gene mm. and uh, I, I think uh, there, there are so many misunderstandings that have uh, occurred Stephen Jay Gould was like a, a big sort of uh, a great popularizer of science and and he was definitely on our side against the creationists so that was good but he actually obfuscated and confused a lot of things and, and made things murky. Uh, I, 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 I actually don't know of any like real difficulty with the selfish gene model. Right. I, I don't have any, nothing real. Um, I think, you know, what, one way to think about it though, is, is that, uh, there, there could be this difference between genes and genome. So like what a genome is, is a collection of genes that have decided to come together and cooperate. And so cooperation is a big theme in, in uh, evolution as much as competition is. We always highlight competition, you know, like survival of the fittest, nature, red and tooth and claw, right? We, we highlight the, the bloody side of of evolution, but wherever you look, there's actually extraordinary cooperation. And somehow it's sometimes it, it gets missed because it's, it's a little like too obvious. Like sometimes, you know, when something is too obvious, you, you don't see it, it becomes invisible to you. It's like, uh, you know, that, uh, that story about, uh, the two fish are swimming two young fish, I guess are swimming. And then an older fish 
uh, passes them and says, uh, hi, boys, how's the water? <laughs> and, uh, and then as they fly, as they, as they swim away, one fish says to the other, uh, what's water? <laughs> right. So I think that's, yeah. that's like what the, the genome is in biology. Like we, we just, we say, what's, what genome? We take it as, as obvious that the organism should have a genome. But if you think about it, a genome is a huge testament to cooperation. Like these genes are tying their fate together. And so because of this, this notion of, of cooperation, I think, I think um, issues like group selection come in and, and really, I think it's just like a special case because there are, there are also viruses that have much fewer genes and, and in bacteria, we, all, we also have horizontal gene transfer. So I think the general model is the selfish gene model. Right. There could be there could be like little exceptions that that give credence to the other models. Yeah, there's just like weird there there's like um Ah, oh, what was the one I was trying to articulate the other day? I think it was clownfish that I that I saw where they have uh they they have what looks like this is always misleading when you watch like a nature program um and it kind mm -hmm. of what it looks like and what's what's actually happening isn't always represented in the right way but clownfish cuz they have the uh you know they're not the only fish to change gender for for whatever reason it'll be like a, a bunch of females and then one will become the male and there'll be one male in this little bit of territory that they have but they right. have a way of they have a way of, um, uh, be, because of the way that they they replicate, it regulate. It seems to keep their population numbers under yeah. control, uh, yeah. and and that just seems like the most counterintuitive. Like I can't think of another species that has anything that resembles like a a, a self regulating population. Uh mechanism and and so it, it, once in a while i see things like that and and then i because i've i've talked with a couple people that are like uh oh, group selection is like starting to bubble up again in like peculiar ways i don't know i don't know enough about it i come from a selfish gene point of view myself so but well no i mean there are a lot of mechanisms like that so yeast do uh what you just mentioned as well i had a professor who would say that uh, a great way to think about <laughs> uh, sex in yeast is that uh, a yeast cell will come into the bar, look around, see if there are there more of this sex than of that sex, and then they decide what they're going to be tonight. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's funny. So there are a lot of mechanisms. Uh, for example, meiosis, uh, which is like how we um, how we pass on genes from uh from our generation to the next generation that that kind of if you know if you portray it in, in some some light it could seem as though that the the genes have a kind of uh, ultimate fairness but it's it's not it ultimately if it, it's it's an illusion that in, in my perspective it ultimately boils down uh to a selfish gene model and what about i i was Wondering if maybe you could comment on as we talk about the genome and cooperation. One thing that's um, that's interesting to me is that something will kind of get selected for through uh, maybe it, it increases the ability to survive or replicate or whatever. But then there's other genes 
really close to it that just kind of hitchhike is it, right. it, what's the name of of that that process when when uh, genes just kind of uh, yeah, get yeah, lucky hitchhiking Hitch, yeah, hitchhiking yeah yeah, yeah. yeah exactly Right, because uh, the the genome has an address, right? For every every gene is a, a particular location. Yeah, and so uh, if there's a gene that's right next to it, or or even like a one of one letter in that gene is is like a mutation that just happened, it could get uh, swept uh, also to fixation. So that goes from. That means that it's just one allele, and now it's it's the majority uh, within the population. Yeah, so th- there are uh, a lot of ways that, that alleles can hitchhike on selection for other alleles. I, I think I was trying to I was trying to recall one, and I think I was actually I think I said turkey gizzard, but I, I meant turkey snoods, the the weird flappy thing on uh-huh. on turkeys over their noses. I I guess. Uh. I had, that's uh, what that's called. I never knew what that's called. A yeah, it's a cute name, and <laughs> I I guess um, females prefer it, and they kind of <laughs> looked at the oh, looked at okay. the so genes. Selection. There's sexual selection going on, but what's sexy about that? And I I think that there's a hitchhiker effect going on where where the gene for the snoot is actually really close by something that's really beneficial for its immune system. <laughs> so it, yeah. it, so anyways it's 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 um a lot of maybe you could explain a little bit of um cuz i think we spend a fair amount of time talking about bigger picture stuff of natural and sexual selection on here but um little nuanced things that that a lot of people don't know about are are like kind of um genetic drift and just just evolutionary mm. processes that that happen um not yeah. uh, that that there's there's change that happens that isn't always necessarily like it, every little change isn't beneficial for survival or replication it's just usually that's sort of what wins out um in the end but that's that's not kind of every little step along the way. Right. Yeah. Let, let's talk about it. So uh, let, let's start with like a, a concrete example. Let's say we wanted to study a, a disease. You know, we have a disease for, uh, I don't know, like congenital heart disease. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we wanted to see uh, what is the gene responsible for that? So, what you, what you could think about doing is let's take a hundred people that don't have it. And then let's take a hundred people that do have it and we'll just sequence their genomes and we'll just see what's different. Right? So it just sounds so straightforward, right? If, if there's a mutation that, that causes it, it should be present here and absent there. And we do that. We do that a lot. It's called a, a genome wide association study or a GWAS for the aficionados. That's the acronym. Uh, the problem is when you do that, you see that there are millions of differences, right? So if you, for, for example, would just take your genome and compare it to, to <laughs> I said your genome and pointed to me, uh, your genome and compare it to my genome, mm-hmm. you, uh, you won't just get the gene responsible for uh, your 
Would you say you're you're blonde or of red of reddish? I, uh, I found out that I my my beard is red and people would be I uh, I always thought I was blonde and my whole life or as I got older people are like oh you're kind of a redhead and I was yeah. like no I am not I was in real redhead denial and does the beard it, match the hair? Yeah, but summertime I lighten up a little bit. But yeah, I know what you're it's going. A, it, okay, so so right. you, you might say the only difference would be that you're a, red, a redhead. I'm right. obviously not. You you might think, oh, there'd just be like two or three differences. No, there's going to be. Uh, so you and I are 99.9% identical. But because our genome is 6 billion letters long, that one in a thousand change is six million. So if you would compare your genome to my genome, there would be six million differences. Mm. And you know, maybe having red uh, have being a redhead is one of those differences. But what about the five million nine hundred ninety nine thousand and nine hundred ninety nine other changes? Uh, and to your point, most of those would be of no consequence. Like mm. if you see an A where I have a T, it would be of no consequence. And that's that's. Um, uh, what, what happens is that there's mutations happening all the time. And if that mutation does not exert any kind of phenotypic effect on the world, then it's subject to the whims of chance. It just comes and it goes. It's, it's, it, it could actually uh, go to fixation, which means that over time it will actually just be by, by dumb luck. Or maybe like what you were uh uh, talking about before, if it's close to a gene that is under selection, it could get a free ride, it could hitchhike. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so most of the changes are actually not under natural selection, which is amazing. But it makes it difficult to now understand the genome. And uh, I could actually tell you a really interesting story uh, about how one one change in our genome did make a huge difference about how we lost our tail. Did, uh, oh, did, did I tell you? I, I don't story? know this one. I, oh, I don't this, think so. This, okay, so this is a, a project that's uh, being done in, in my lab, and it's uh, led by a grad student called Bo Xia. And Bo, listen to this story. You're going to flip out. Uh, so he takes an Uber ride, but he, so he's in the Uber, but he's a grad student. You know, he doesn't have a lot of money. So he, uh, he kind of uh, tried to save a few bucks and he got Uber pool, right? So he's in the Uber and then some, the, you know, the Uber stops and like some dude comes in. So Bo has to move over. But he, I guess the whole thing happened kind of fast. So he moves over and he sits on the buckle, right? Have you ever done that? You sit on the buckle and your, your tail, tailbone kind of hurts. So he, he really hurt his tailbone. Yeah, I mean, he was really hurting. And uh, most people would just kind of like suffer in silence. But Bo, Bo's amazing. So what he did is he started like becoming like really obsessive about like, why does his tailbone hurt so much? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that made him think like, actually, why don't we really have a tail? You know, all these other monkeys have a tail, not all of them, but like the, you know, you, you've gone to the zoo, you've seen monkeys with tail. Why did we lose our tail? If a genie so, appeared to me today and was like, you can have a tail, yes or no, I'd be like, yeah, tail me. Hell yeah, right? Yeah, fact, you can hang from it and everything. I mean, not many species get to hang from it, but if I get a hanger tail, I'm taking it. 
Well, you know, also in these pandemic days, you know how you're constantly like holding the coffee, putting your mask oh. on, if, if, the logistics, right? Imagine if you had a tail now, you, it's like a whole other world of like. I haven't put you, enough thought into all the things I would do with my tail. Oh, so man. Much, so, so much. So much. Yeah. So, I mean, this whole story is about how we got robbed of a tail. And <laughs> so, so listen to this. He, he goes to, does no experiments. He figures it all out with no experiments in just five minutes. He goes to uh, the genome browser. This is a website where you can uh, look at the, the gene sequence, but more importantly, you could uh, look at it sort of annotated in many different ways. So one of the annotations is you just see what's going on in other genomes. So you can see, okay, this is your genome sequence. And then, I mean, not yours, like humanities, the human genome. And then below it's like chimpanzee and then, I don't know, bonobos and uh, macaque and all, all the primates, right? You can even go further like mice and chickens, whatever. So um, he went to this gene that's sort of known to control uh, tail development. So developmental biologists, they've worked for a long time. They, they know like what the usual suspects are. They know like these, these 10 genes, they're the ones that control tail development. So he goes to one of them and he just sees that there's um, this thing called the alu element. An alu element, we could talk about it later if you want. It's a selfish, it's like a, what's called like ultra selfish. This thing is like, there's a million copies a million alu copies in each human genome and they're not doing anything functional really uh except just copy pasting themselves back in so they're just like freeloading off of our genome in fact freeloading is like the dominant story of the human genome so much so much selfishness is happening within the human genome uh, anyway, so that, I he, feel he, I feel like a living extended phenotype of the oh, of yeah. the freeloaders. Yeah, you're just you're just like a you're like a sideshow. Like the main <laughs> on the main stage is just like a million of these alus just like going around. I mean, it's, and alus is just even not the whole story. There's so many other mobile the virtual transpose so many of these. Anyway, so yeah. one of them, one of them is in our human genome. And it's also in all of the primates that don't have a tail. So, you know, a chimpanzee, a gorilla, they also don't have a tail. And all of us have this alu right at this particular place. And all the primates that don't have, sorry, that do have a tail are missing this alu. So uh, the thing is, that happens many times when there's uh, a pattern like this. What mm. was special about this, that only Bo, like, saw what, what made it amazing and, and uh, uh, it was crazy is that he, he kind of uh, made, he looked at it and he made this ment mental model of what's happening, which is he saw that it could hybridize with another alu element on the other side of an exon, which is like a, a portion that codes for a gene, and that that would lead to this thing called alternative splicing which would like change the meaning of the protein. So he just looks at it, he gets like, whoosh, you know, he like, he gets like something interesting could be happening here. And he convinced me that it's awesome. Actually, I didn't need much convincing. It just sounded so cool. And we made a mouse. We made him, you know, now you can just like take a, take a mouse, like move stuff around, you know, make a designer mouse. So we made a mouse that simulates the effect of this alu and the mouse lost the tail. Wow. So now we can just, 
And uh, yeah, so now we, we, it just really looks like that was the mutation that happened 25 million years ago. Like we can look at our genome now. We can be like, oh, because of this thing, we lost our tail 25 million years ago. And, and so the natural question is, if, if you take it out, can you get your tail back? That's what I want to know. I want a tail baby. I didn't even want, I never wanted kids until this very moment. Now I'm like, I kind of want a tail baby. Well, it's so funny that because, uh, you know, in many cultures, tails were considered like every once in a while, a human baby is born with a tail. Yeah. And it's always like considered like really shameful as though, as though the, the baby did something wrong or something. And if, if you read this yeah. book, uh, 100 Years of Solitude. Richard, did you hear this? It's like part of my favorite uh -uh. fiction book. Uh, so I told you about my favorite nonfiction book, The Selfish Gene. My favorite fiction book is 100 Years of Solitude by uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And there, the whole sort of story revolves around kids being born with tails. Well, I'm exaggerating, but it does figure in there. <laughs> huh. uh, so, but the thing is, what, because it happened 25 million years ago, our guess is that even if we were to, which of course we wouldn't, but let's say, let's say that alu element popped out just by chance. We think just our speculation, we haven't of course done this human experiment. Uh, we think it still would not be enough to bring the tail back because mm. 25 million years is a long time. Probably a lot of genetic changes have built on top of it and now kind of have locked in this tailless state. Ah, well, you just, you, you built up all my hope and then you just ruined it. I, I just crushed, <laughs> crushed your dreams. I know. No, uh, I, it would be cool to have a tail. I have to admit. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's like, what's that, what's that odd, um, oh, shoot. What's the name of it? There's this some hair condition where people are hairy all all over their face. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I interviewed someone that wrote a whole book about it, but that's not what I interviewed her about, so I don't remember any details. Anyway, that's there cool. there's just like odd odd things like that with one little one little change, and you can have a hairy right. face. Just the, right, it's it's so cool because yeah, you would think that. Okay, we got like 20,000 genes. So maybe I have like one gene for this portion of my face, one gene for this portion, one gene. But it doesn't work like that. The, the genome is actually, one way to think about it is that there are workers and there are managers. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you disrupt the activity of a manager, then like everything underneath kind of falls apart too. So that's like, you know, you could just like with one small change, you could actually make a big difference because mm. you didn't change uh, a tiny thing. But uh, well, sometimes we call it a master regulator. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Hey, I, you know, I've been uh, speaking of, of, of weird evolutionary things that may or may not actually have utility for either survival or replicating. I've been thinking about that a little bit with uh, I, I should look into the evolution of beards because 
Mm. having this thing is especially so i trim my mustache a lot but i didn't in the beginning and i just let it go and it's like getting in my mouth and it was absolutely (laughs) disgusting i just had someone write me that they they said they were upset that i said big mustaches are disgusting but i stand by it i lived it um and and they were half kidding i hope but um but that's I mean, if you if you think about what the utility of a beard could be, it's like, well, it mm. can't be warmth because why wouldn't females have it as well if they're like usually females have the utility on lockdown in most species, and uh, and but- like is it a is it a sexually like I I find it. Like it could, you could advertise like grooming skills with it or something like that. I don't know. It's like you would, you would think you could demonstrate to your mate. Look, I could groom like this. I could make a nice shape out of that. It's, it's so weird because it's like, it's stuff gets in it. You would, you would think that, that it would, it would lead to more, more disease or just wouldn't smell great or whatever else before there was like, regular sanitation and showers and things like that and and it's, it's to think about it like it i mean in a fight this isn't it's not really blocking a punch very well for me i don't think that has anything to do with it could be testosterone is like anti-immunal well, and yeah i heard i heard two theories one is like you said sexual selection and it, it could be that uh males have selected women that have less uh you know less facial hair yeah Uh, but another theory is that and vice versa and another theory is that the um the the role of communication plays such a dominant role in in our society like we communicate more and what we're mostly trying to do when we're communicating is we're trying to read each other's minds like right now I'm trying to think, what is Shane going to ask next? Like, what is Shane thinking? I'm trying to read your mind. I'm trying to read your, I can't wait to hear where you're going with this. (laughs) Well, I just think if, if, uh, if a person has less facial hair than, or like generally less hairy, then I can better read their mind. Mm. And so, uh, and of course, evolution is not about what I can do. Evolution is about the genes. And so, maybe is uh, a gene can survive better in a kind of population where people are communicating better. So, so that's, that's one notion that, that, that to improve our brain read, like, of reading of each other's minds, <laughs> it's better if we have less facial hair, but I, I mean, this, there's a lot of trouble with that because like chimpanzees, they, they communicate a lot too. Why, why do they have more facial hair? Mm. And why is it so long? Even if it's like a facial hair <laughs> thing, like why would it, I mean, this is like you could pull on it. This is, if anything, it's a mm. danger in a fight. I think and you've given this a lot of thought. It's also men <laughs> seem to like my beard more than ladies do. You know, it's a, it's more of like a it's know, it I might be like a status it, yeah. thing or something like that more than because because humans got I, a lot more going on than just. I can tell. I mean, no, I I definitely understand. You know, when I think about like John Lennon, right? Like, what what if you if I ask you, imagine the John Lennon of all the periods of John Lennon, where he was like the most kind of childlike versus imagine the John Lennon where he was most like philosophical, you know, like this, yeah. you know, commenter of society. 
of course, the latter you imagine like with that cool beard, wearing the "I Love New York" uh, yeah, T-shirt, yeah. and the, uh, the 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 Beatlemania. That's more beardless, John. Uh, that's <laughs> interesting, huh? I thought maybe it was because because there is some speculation that that like strong jaw lines are advertising um, inability to mm. take the hit of testosterone and the testosterone being potentially not great Whoa. for the immune system and in, in high doses and so if you have a stronger immune system maybe you can release more testosterone at a certain age but then and maybe that's why got men die younger too which made me think like well this is this is if, if i'm if i'm trying to sell myself if i'm like to a sperm bank or something <laughs> i think this is i think this is advertising that i have enough testosterone to signal a good immune system but then enough but the hair on the top still too so not so much testosterone that it's overly mm. hard on an, an immune system oh yeah you've got like a goldilocks level of testosterone. <laughs> yeah that's, that's, <laughs> that's what, what i try to tell people yeah that's what you're trying to project yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> um what do you think about um uh, in related territory, what do you think about um, like spandrels in in genetics? Oh, yeah. Could could you could you explain that idea? And are you are you fond of it? And th the idea of of yeah, of yeah. some things that look like they might be significant, like since we're talking about like maybe this beard could be, or or say, you know, if there's like uh, the the way a chin is shaped. Um, we might, through the lens of trying to find the utility and everything or the sexiness and everything, exactly. we might be like, oh, there's, there has to be a reason that chin has the particular shape, but it's maybe yeah. just the inevitable outcome of like uh, being predators with two eyes facing forward and having a face right. shape like this and neck and blah, blah, blah. It's other things going on there. And, and the chin is like this kind of decorative um ornamental uh outcome of of two other things with utility kind of coming yeah. together no exactly i mean you, you explain it perfectly i think it's the there's this adaptationist program to take everything we see and say okay what is it for what is something for uh and it used to be that there's two not just used to be it still is like a, a good starting point for explaining anything in my mind is uh chance and necessity this, those are the two explanations if, if someone asks you why is something the way it is so one reason is it has to be that way like it was selected for that it's 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 really doing something important and the other is it's just chance now mm -hmm. we've been talking a lot about chance uh so that's good it's getting another mention here um what, what Stephen Jay Gould was was talking about when he mentioned spandrels, his his uh, notion was that uh, a related concept is constraints. A lot of time, uh, something is because uh, because it's it's more complicated. I'll, I'll give you an example: uh, male nipples. Why, like, why do you and I have nipples? Someone could say, "Well, you have a nipple." You then there has to be a reason why you have a nipple. Like I, I mean, like why would the the body go to the trouble of making you a nipple for no reason? There has to be a reason. So so 
uh, what Gould would say, I think, I'm, I mean, I'm putting words into his mouth. Uh, he, he passed away, I think, in 2006, so he can't answer you himself right now. What he would say is that uh, there are constraints on how things have to be done. So, I mean, we all know that the nipples of the female are crucial for uh, for producing, for not producing, for distributing the, the milk. And that's through the mammary glands. And we're called mammals because of this such an important thing. Uh, so in women, it's terribly important to have nipples, right? Mm-hmm. And it could just be that that it's just so hardwired into creating a human body to create nipples that even though in the males they're not used, mm-hmm. they they still have to be created. There's this constraint where you can't make this top part without putting nipples. You just can't do it. It's locked in. Mm. And so, and so, like if you what what Stephen Jay Gould would say, hey. If you're now going to construct this crazy story about males have nipples uh, that ignores the fact that there's a constraint, then you're just leading yourself astray. You're just going to say, oh, you have nipples because, uh, I don't know, it's, they look good. It's fun to have. It's, you're, just, you're just fooling yourself. That the explanation is that it's, it's an ornament, like you said. Yeah, I, 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 it's, it's so depressing that I don't get to have a tail and at the same time there's just no escaping nipples and if, <laughs> if, if and if you're a male that uh, in, in in high school years uh you're you're going to you're probably going to find out in like a locker room or something sometime what one of the downsides of having having yeah. nipples but wouldn't it be ridiculous to say the, the the function of having a nipple is to get efficiently bullied in high school? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, isn't there there there's certain things that are um, that are useful in a given gender that then um, in the embryonic development there there's some things that start developing before gender is determined. And some mm-hmm. things that happen after gender is determined. So, ah. we, so we see we see a lot of like sexual dimorphism in a lot of males and females. But then, but then sometimes there's also like a female bird will still have like a little bit of this blue spot that's no good for her, makes her stick out mm. to predators. But it's just because right. that that process started that that process of of the embryonic development launched off in the cascades before the before the sex was determined and those new cascades branched off into their various kind of programs, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. And it could be that, that you, um, the developmental program now is sort of, uh, less flexible at some parts, less plastic. And and Mm -hmm. so it can't, it can't change. Um, you know, another example is, um, Ford limbs in Wales, so if you think about, no, sorry, uh, hind limbs. So if you look at a whale, it doesn't have legs, of course, right? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't have whales. But if you did an x-ray of a whale, if you, yeah. if you went into its skeleton, it has little baby legs. Yeah. As in the skeleton, inside all that blubber or whatever, there are these little baby. And the reason is that, that you can't change the process to take out the legs. It's, even though you could say, well, what's the point of building it, the legs, if you're not going to use them? Uh, and... Uh, and if you were to 
try to figure out what's the function of those legs. It's ridiculous. There's no function. It's just, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a spandrel in the sense. It's like by constraint, it's, it's still there. Yeah, I, I I often wonder how many um, um, evolutionary holdovers uh, we have where uh, where they their their utility is is passed, but they're just still with a, it, it, yeah. an example that I love using. I, I there's some some t- sea turtle that uh, that goes from. Um, it makes the long journey from the east coast or from the west coast of Africa to the east coast of South America um, to seemingly just to lay its eggs, oh. and um, and they're like, why in the world would you go so far and risk your life trick, and yeah. everything else? Yeah. And um, and they and they look at the two regions and they were actually uh, basically touching during Pangaea. And oh. the idea is, is that like there was a river or whatever, and there was a advantage to going across Whoa. and laying away from the river where it'd be away from whatever predator or whatever at the time. And then each generation, it got uh, the continent wow. got uh, like a yard further apart and a little further you'd have to swim. But it was just once it was programmed in there and now there's nothing to flip that preference for swimming that direction when it's mating season or whatever right. and it because because you could potentially s- in, increase survival and and um and offspring numbers and everything else a great deal if they could just if one of them be like you know what i'm just gonna hang out here and lay my eggs instead of it's swimming. crazy yeah and it really shows how having a historical perspective like if you know the history of something you know so much because if you know if you just take this perspective or like just give me the organism right now i'm just going to study it the way it is just looking at its biology so many things won't make sense yeah you know the the why is something the way it is uh it kind of like requires you to know the the history of it Mm -hmm. um and the other thing i I was thinking about as you're talking um, in kind of speaking of chance, that was, it was just, uh, we're, we're recording this on Valentine's day. Uh, I, I'm not sure when it's actually going out. Um, but, uh, probably a few weeks from now or something, but anyhow, it was just Darwin day. And so I was just reading mm. the bits of Darwin stuff and, and, you know, re- reminded of, uh, of, you know, the classic example of Darwin's finches of the various beaks that are just a slightly different size for getting you know a a, a little better at getting nuts on this one part of an island than on a in a slightly different environment and sort of these kind of islands of speciation that happen when when uh when uh a species splits off into a couple groups and goes off and finds itself in a different environment. Uh, those different environments are going to have different pressures that are going to yeah. eventually lead to different changes. But I was thinking about that when we, we were talking about kind of the um, like more, more neutral drift or whatever. I, I, I think you could theoretically, you could run a, an experiment where you, where you take a, a big group of a species and then create two islands that are identical Mm. in every way Mm. and split them up. And you would still see change given enough time. There would be some, 
right. changes. They wouldn't remain Even identical forever. Oh yeah, yeah. Th- these um, this experiment has sort of been done naturally because a mm. lot of times uh, a new sort of river will flow through that it didn't flow before. Now it divides uh, populations and. And you, you indeed, you can show that, that uh, after a while, the sort of the lock no longer fits the key, <laughs> you know, because they're, they're, they're changing, even, even though they're not adapting to anything new, they're just changing internally. There, there are new alleles coming in. And, and like we talked about before, the, the genome is a bunch of genes that they're, that are fighting it out. And uh, the way Martin and I, uh, Martin Lurcher, my collaborator on many things, and I like to think about it, is that it's a society of genes and the society is evolving. And now because there are, you've split them up and there's two societies, after a while, they're going to be sort of speaking different languages. And they, mm-hmm. and they um, one individual from here will no longer be able to mate uh, uh, effectively, you know, producing mates, uh, producing offspring that are themselves uh, able to, to procreate uh, because now they're, and that's actually, that's our definition of what a, a species is, is a population that uh, can breed mm-hmm. internally, but not externally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, well, I, I wanted to, uh, I want to make sure um, that we get into uh, a, a little bit of your podcast as well, because one of the reasons why I, 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 I follow all of my past guests on Twitter and, um, and uh, actually a lot of my guests aren't on Twitter at, at all. And, and some are more active than others. And, and uh, I've been enjoying um, some of the thoughts that you've been sharing, but uh, I, I also, um, I saw that you started your own podcast, the Night Science Podcast, and yeah, you, I, I especially enjoyed some of your tweets about that and about creativity and science and things. And and uh, I just I'm always trying to give more options for people to, you know, they learn science in a number of different ways. And um, so yeah, I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about why you yeah. started that, some of the kind of general premise of it. Yeah, no, thank you for that question, Shane. And I have to say that I think some of it uh, was motivated by just seeing how you are doing a podcast and all the work that you're doing with the stand-up uh, science, too. I think it's it's uh, maybe kind of uh, encouraged me to, to take a more active role in talking science with the, the general public, too. So That's great. Uh, it's, thank yeah. you. So, okay, the night science... Uh, okay, Martin and I. What we like to talk about is how th- there's. I don't know. I don't know how it happened that we scientists f- forgot in some way this, um, or, or maybe Martin and I are wrong. But here's how we see science. We we make this dichotomy, and perhaps it's a false dichotomy. Perhaps it's more of a continuum. But we think it's really helpful to think about the way science is done as being uh, comprised of two spheres of work. One part of science is just what we've been taught, which is you have a hypothesis uh, for 
uh, solving a particular problem, let's do an experiment, right? Let's test the hypothesis. If there's evidence for it, then the hypothesis gets to survive that, and maybe we'll test it again. If it survives enough more tests, it will be elevated to a theory, which is the highest form of knowledge in science, a theory. But what the scientific method never talks about is where did you get that theory? Where did you have that? Where did you get the hypothesis? Right? In, in many ways, you know, think about like Einstein, the notion of relativity. What an idea, right? Like the, 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 all of the creativity there was to get to the idea. Once you have the idea, now you can think about how to test it. So we're really distinguishing between two parts of science, getting the idea and then testing the idea. Getting the idea we call night science, testing the idea we call day science. And I don't know how it happened. That's what I was starting out saying at the beginning. I don't know why science is in this particular state right now, but there's a huge uh, dominance, a huge influence of day science. A lot of, we're always in, people are, scientists are, are, are taught, even like you think about how science gets taught in high schools and middle schools, it's all really day science, right? We never get taught, how do you have an idea? No one teaches us the creative aspect. And it, it, there's no scientific method for how to have an idea. No mm. one teaches us how to have an idea. So uh, Martin and I just think it's crazy. And with the podcast, what we're doing is we're just bringing in uh, scientists that have influenced our thinking, good scientists, and we just ask them, please tell us, how do you have your ideas? What is your process? We're really interested in the process of coming up with ideas. And it's so interesting, like what, what we're learning. Um, like I can tell you about one, one idea that actually... Uh, has led us to do uh, an experiment that's mm. that actually that uh, kind of went viral on Twitter, which was fun. And it, it goes like this: the, the, so the notion is that <clears throat> uh, you might think a hypothesis is great, right? It's all awesome. It's the best thing in the world to have a hypothesis. But what we try to to uh, ask is maybe in some cases having a hypothesis can actually be bad for you. Because if you have a hypothesis, what if um, you're so married to that hypothesis, you can't see anything else? You're, you're just tied to it. You actually kind of like become blind to any alternative explanations. And, and so we did this experiment. Uh, you, you know the famous experiment of uh, the invisible gorilla? Where you show? Uh, yeah, yeah. You saw that? The the uh, uh, listeners pause right now. If you don't know what we're talking about, <laughs> right, pause right, right. right now and just watch watch the um, video. I mean, it, it's kind selective, of selective. Uh, it's called selective attention. Yeah, yeah Google selective attention. It's experiment. already spoiled a little bit. Maybe I'll I'll, I'll maybe put <laughs> it. I'll maybe put it in the intro to watch uh, uh, to watch ahead that. of time. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Because uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's a fun one. Gorilla. It's a classic, and and they've expanded on it so many. There's been exactly. a lot of really fun iterations of it. But now, uh, go ahead and explain it to people. Right. So you're asked to count the number of passes that students are making with the basketball. They're just they're just like running around throwing a basketball, and you have to count one pass, two pass, three pass. How many passes did they do in these thirty seconds or so? 
And the answer is 15 or whatever. But then they ask you, did you see the gorilla? Because, and then they rewind and they show you that as you were counting, there was a person in a gorilla suit that walked around, got to the middle, pounded on their chest, and then walked to the other side. And 50% of the people that watch this don't see the gorilla. So mm. that's incredible. So yeah. we were just wondering, does the same thing happen in science? Like when you're doing an experiment, is there something that's analogous to a gorilla in your data and you're missing it because you're like so fixated on your hypothesis. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, we designed this experiment where we take a class of students in computer science or learning statistics and we give them a, a data set and, and it's the same data set to both, uh, to all students, but we divide them into two groups. One group we say, uh, please, just analyze this data set uh, and when we say what is the data set it's just a thousand lines because for every line it's a person and we have two numbers for each person what is their uh, BMI index their body mass index and how many steps did they take per day mm-hmm. <clears throat> so you might expect oh, a person that walks around a lot maybe they have a, uh, what is it, a low BMI index Mm-hmm. And if and if you you're very inactive, maybe you have a high BMI index and like that. So you could start to like develop a hypothesis. Uh, but uh, to the first group, we said, just please take this data set. Tell us what do you find in it? What do you conclude from it? Mm-hmm. The other group, we said, please take this data set, same data set. Here's how it's structured. Tell us, please, what do you find in this data set? But also. Can you please tell us exactly what is the p-value? What is the significance of the relationship in these in these people of their BMI related to their number of steps per day? So the, this group, they had a concrete hypothesis that there's a relationship between how many steps you take and your BMI. These you were just asked to explore. Now, the data set is a trick data set where if you just plot it, x, y, like BMI, number of steps per day, it's it's a picture of a gorilla waving at you. You know, oh, like each fine. person is a dog. <laughs> and, and we were just wondering, <laughs> we were just wondering who would see the gorilla? Uh, because of course it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter that it's a gorilla. The point is to see who would plot their data. Because to answer the question of what's the p-value, you don't have to plot the data, right? You can just, you could just, it's just one line of code in the, in the software. You just put it in, just like, what's the correlate? And then, you know, that's it. You're done. So what we saw is that the students that didn't have a hypothesis, they were just told to explore the data set. They were three times more likely to discover the gorilla than the people who are hypothesis focused. Wow. So we concluded yeah. that a hypothesis can be a liability. You're liable mm. to miss things. And this happens all the time, I think. So that there's this uh, a night science exchange between What's the role of hypothesis? What's the role of exploration? And it's interesting to to think about. Hmm. I can give I can give you another. Oh yeah, go on. Well, so, so I mean, theoretically, if you wanted to improve upon the it, the scientific process, wouldn't you have the people running the experiments just give their data sets to 
Um, a data analyst mm. has no idea the attachment or what they were after with the experiment or anything else and just say, what do you see in this data? Is that, is that a way uh, to improve upon? To, I see what you're saying. Well, that's a good idea, right? Just give it to someone objective and have them see. Well, you, you know what I think about? There's this uh, story uh, of Sherlock Holmes where... You know, you ever read a, a Sherlock Holmes story where you're trying to figure out like who did it? <laughs> I, I've and, I've watched I've watched all of the Sherlock Holmes series. I don't read fiction. Um, actually, <laughs> I, I I only watch it. Well, but, there, there's yeah. this one where the um, the solution was to realize that the, there was a thief, right? You're trying to figure out who's the thief, but there was a dog. There was a dog in the house. And Sherlock Holmes picks up on the fact that the dog did not bark. He asked, he asked people, did, did anybody hear any barking? Nobody heard barking. And from that, Sherlock Holmes concluded that it must be uh, that the thief, that the dog knows the thief. Mm -hmm. in a, so in other words, the, the, the critical thing was to realize that something did not happen. The dog did not bark. And that's a lot of times what happens when you're analyzing real data, because, you know, usually it's not something so dramatic, like a gorilla popping up. It's to, like, and that's why I think my point is going to be that you can't really outsource it to someone else because you, you bring a lot to it. Like you, you like bring your whole sort of uh, history of everything, you know, to a data set for better or worse. You um, it, it's been shown actually that you give the same data set to many different people each person will find something else. And they could be that they're all true, the, the things that the, the people find. It's just that you sort of, um, you, you, you say, oh, this, if you think about it, like these are macrophages, so they should be doing this, but they're not doing that. That's interesting. Mm. Whereas a more sort of uh, inexperienced observer wouldn't pick up on that. I see. I see. So I think I think that's why you can't really like, you don't know what you're looking for. That, right. That's actually a real like kind of like night science question. Like how do you find something that you don't know if it's there, and if it is there, you don't know what it would look like. You're just trying to look for something interesting. Yeah. And that that's like to me that's like the the thing that draws me to science. Like, I think I would have I would have given up on science. I would have like you know this, this life is so interesting. There's so many things to do in life. You could like write poetry. You could like explore Antarctica. You could so many cool things to do. Like why just be a scientist your whole time? I asked myself that, especially since COVID. But I think I'm hooked on science because there's like this thrill of, of uh, discovery. There's this notion of what's in here. And, and you realize that uh, like it's, it's really demanding. It's, it's also like really, really frustrating sometimes because you know something's there, but you don't know what it is, or maybe it's not there. Maybe you're just imagining, and maybe you're fooling yourself. It's an intellectual adventure. Adventure. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm also curious. So, I think the reason why chance has been on my mind um, quite a bit lately is because I, I still, um, I have no, uh, I, I have no, um, you know, like a official scientific training i never went to college or anything and so i i've, I've found that 
especially since COVID, as I see people connecting a lot of dots that mm. I know absolutely are not there. It hmm. just it just has me thinking so much about how many times I've done that. And I, I was kind of um mm. I, I was and and recently I was um I was kind of looking at the uh the um uh, uh Darwin versus Wallace stuff and 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 it, it seemed like it, it just had me it and and then learning about um um runaway selection pressures um and and it had me thinking about like a uh, null hypothesis uh, uh, like the, a null hypothesis more than i have in the past of just mm. thinking cuz i make connections and i have ideas constantly so i've mm. always i I've, I've been checking myself more going all right how much am i digging in and right. motivated reasoning confirmation bias is taking over finding what i want to find in things i haven't i i've never been trained to analyze data um and and so right. i i've been thinking well, what if there's no connection? <laughs> like, whenever I do have one of these great ideas, yeah. like, but what if that's actually not a connection? What if it's, what if it's wrong? Well, yeah. first of all, I got to tell you, Shane, that if I was uh, a person of consequence in a university, I would make, I would uh, motion for you to get an honorary degree in biology, <laughs> because just from this discussion alone, I can tell that, that you know a lot and deserve a degree. Oh, I appreciate so, that. <laughs> but I think... Uh, it's, it's a fair question, and it's one that that perhaps a lot of people, uh, like perhaps scientists, we don't, we don't describe it as much as we should. And it goes like this. It's fair, especially in night science, that's the whole point of night science, is to create as many ideas as possible. Right. And you don't, and you don't have to worry if they're right or wrong. You just have to think about if they're interesting and if they potentially could explain some things, if they're innovative, if they're exciting. And then all you have to do is then move it over to day science. Day science is the adult in the room. Day science is rigorous. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, day science is the one we try to communicate to the anti-vaxxers where we're trying to say, guys, look, it's not what you think. We have mm -hmm. these clinical trials these randomized controlled trials like th all that rigor all that power of science it all comes from day science mm -hmm. thing is day science would be nothing though if it didn't have good ideas you know mm -hmm. uh, day science can test an mrna vaccine mm -hmm. but where did the idea come from mm -hmm. to use mrnas for a vaccine like that's a total night science idea that uh, and then you know you had to kind of develop it and then when it's ready, you bring it for formal testing. So I think it's, that's what I, I really like about science. And I think um, we don't communicate enough. I, I'll give you an example. Well, one thing that, that happened to me is, is uh, when you talk to, to people sometimes and, um, you know, teenagers, and you ask them, what do you want to do? And you kind of, you know, you're biased because you want them to go into science. So you said, oh, what, how about biology? You, you, would you want to go into biology? And they say, no, I don't want to go into biology because I want to do something creative. And I said, no, biology is so creative. Science mm -hmm. is such a creative thing. Uh, we have to just uh, 
kind of discuss more the night science creativity while making sure that people don't get the wrong idea in thinking that that makes science less robust. It's like it's like the yin and yang, you know? Yeah, in, in, yeah. It's it's a total duality where there's a there's like a crazy process that generates ideas, but then there's like a really adult in the room kind of process that is doing like fact checking, testing. Yeah, yeah. I now I love that. I I guess I I sometimes take my creativity for granted because I it, it fuels much of my you know, career and adult life and everything. And, and there is just, there's no adult in this, in this room. <laughs> no adult in this room. <laughs> whatsoever. I yeah. often felt that myself. <laughs> and, and yeah, so often when I think about, you know, I have a lot of ideas in the shower and things like that. And one, one thing that I've noticed, I'm, I'm very much into perception and consciousness. And, and one of the things that I, um, love thinking about is um i i kind of have this idea of of wh why so so we are talking about you know uh some complicated book that your uh your subconscious is mulling on for a while and then gives you the bright idea oh this connection this is worthwhile I often mm. find myself thinking about what is the criteria of expression that that when when does the subconscious decide now it's mm. ready because you'll you'll have an mm. idea this happens in comedy a lot or whatever you have you you have like I'll have a joke idea and I'll be like eh wh whatever you know and, and I I put it away I often compare it to um. Yeah, I don't even bother writing it down. It's such a bad idea. Oh, and, big mistake! You have to write it down. Oh, that's I, what I wanted to ask you. Do you write it down? I I do often, but some some of them is just like oh, way too many ideas. Um, I I need organizational adulting a lot more than anything else. But the point is, is I'll I'll compare it to like, just this like, kind of. You know, this idea is not going to work for me. Uh, there there's nothing there, and then a month later it'll pop back into my head in the shower and mm. it now it's evolved a little bit it and and maybe the situation in my life is different right. or i've had other ideas since and now there's a perfect place for it and now it just so it went into my you know it popped up the first time just this kind of like degenerative idea that won't do anything for me and then a month late hadn't thought about it since and a month later it pops back into my consciousness wearing a top hat and suit and ready to work for me and <laughs> it's perfect. ready and i often think about well first of all what the heck was that idea doing down there living living that life that whole time but then i i often think about what what were the conditions that that my subconscious decided that was the time that it it was it was ready yeah. to be pulled out of the oven the reason i bring all of this up is because i i wonder in our discussion how much if if there's so much put on day science um mm. how, how many amazing ideas never even end up popping into your consciousness because they're popping into a, a world constrained by needing a certain amount of grant money for something right. to happen. And, oh, and totally, <laughs> totally. No, that's the that's the the thing that we're really uh, trying to rebel against. Where 
it seems as though the whole kind of scientific establishment is is just kind of locked into day science mode. And um, you, what, what we say is is that uh, you know you, you could have like a, a meeting where you want to generate an idea, and and you just like a brainstorming meeting, and, and then nothing will come of it. And that might sound to people like it was a waste of time, but I don't think it is. And I think that that I would still do a hundred of those meetings because I think one in one of those, there's going to be a great idea born. Mm -hmm. And that idea is what I live for. I want that idea. Yeah. I'm, I'm willing to suffer all the, the boring meetings, the ones where that fail. I don't I care. I say this all the time. You need, yeah. you need them. Oh, it's the same in comedy. Well, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I often call myself an epiphany chaser and, and just yes. that I like, that's the number one feeling in the world to me. And I will suffer through a great deal of boring, yeah. you know, books that I'm not overly interested in and things because like could that. Be because, a nugget of gold somewhere. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, the thing is though, let's say a scientist is constrained by all this grant writing and all this paper writing, all this other paperwork and all the realities then and something needs to give you know so you have to cancel something it's always these brainstorming sessions that are the first to go you say oh sorry i can't i can't do this uh and you cancel that but it's a shame because yeah. that's the future that's the future of your of your research those ideas hmm. um and I, I i i was but going back to what you were saying i thought it was really interesting that, because i I constantly have this feeling that if I don't write something down, the minute I think it, it's going to be lost forever. Nah. And now you give <laughs> you give me hope. You give me hope. You're kind of saying, no, there's like a natural selection of ideas in your brain. If it's good, it will bubble back up. I mean, it's a mix. I when I started comedy, I always thought if you don't write it down, you're just throwing money in the street. It's right. it, you know what it's what not, a waste. Um, not true. I. Maybe I've gotten lazier or more interested in other <laughs> things. I'm certainly less passionate about comedy than I was when I when I started. I'm far more interested in. I, f I find myself writing down more serious philosophical ideas and just insights mm. than I than I do jokes. And some of them happen to be funny, and those are the ones that I'll then like dig into and explore a little bit more. But yeah, oh, I, you know. You know, you, you remind me, and I think I tweeted this because you were referring to my tweets, that I think th there's a lot of uh, connection between comedy and night science in the sense that mm. sometimes when, when you have a good idea, one thing that, that um, ha tends to happen is you start laughing. Mm -hmm. Like you're, you're just like, oh, my God. Like, it, it's like a, it's as though the idea is so unexpected. It's like a punchline, right? It's yeah. like someone just. Like you, you're like so fixated on it being one way, and then you see the gorilla, for example. You know, like you're just like, what? It's it's actually this, and the first response is just like, just laughing. Yeah, uh, I, people are often confused about why I kind of like abandoned a traditional comedy path to uh, start mixing science in and doing shows like Stand Up Science, like you per participated in. Yeah. And I often tell people that I I just find so many connections between um, it, uh, science and comedy, which is, and also if I, I, along the way, I got uh, 
kind of known for some psychedelic communication. Um, oh yeah, as that, well. but, that stuff is awesome. But I, I also, um, I, I just, I think the same thing about all three um, things. I've, I have more mixed ideas about psychedelics than than I used to. I think it gets a little far into night science sometimes but 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 generally i think it needs a little more day science in there i was usually like the skeptic that would have all these experiences but still want to like test them and figure out why they're but but anyhow all all three of those subjects there's the kind of alien anthropologist thing happening where Mm. you're you're popping out of yourself in some way. You, you you can't ever do it perfectly, but comedians and scientists, for example, are are trying to have novel insights about the things that everyone else is just walking past. They're not even noticing. It's just a regular right. part of their day, and so you know. Uh, uh, a lot of comedy is like, you ever notice this and that right. thing? And be like, oh my gosh, I did notice it. Yeah, door handles are crazy like that or whatever. <laughs> whatever like normally boring thing that you have a new insight yeah. about and, and science often does, especially in night science. Yeah, comedians, comedians are always like, oh, what is it about cats? Or <laughs> yeah, it drives me these? crazy when they don't just Google. Like I have that insight, and then I look deeply into it. Some some uh, some comedians are out there. I'm like, no, there's an answer for that. <laughs> like, I don't. I've I've often thought like, do I tell the comic that there's a real answer to that, or do I just let them have the joke and be at peace? Um, no, but in but, a sense, the joke it's more fun. But uh I I that's it's a big part of why I wanted you to come on the show. I'm I'm glad that we had such a um terrific chat about genetics, but I think that night science is something that any listener can participate in. I think anyone that's yeah. just enthusiastic and wants to pick up a pop science book from time to time or check out a science podcast is going to find themselves having novel insights all the time. And and as I think just as the world becomes more scientifically literate as like as frustrated as I am with the world um, and um, (laughs) people like not getting uh, like problems that are very specifically scientific. I I also think that even even trolls that I find myself arguing with online are starting to understand things like confirmation bias and motivated reasoning and it's true it's true yeah you could look at this pandemic as like an extended science lesson (laughs) (laughs) everybody's learned everybody has learned immunology we've all learned like about uh, controls and and um, yeah trials everybody everybody's talking about PCR I don't know if people know what PCR is but everybody's like is it a PCR test or is it antigen and <laughs> yeah. everybody so so uh, I think there's that's one silver lining of this yeah I mean it's 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 rough going through it but but I the the reason I bring it up is is because I I do I think that um, I think that there's going to be tons of, uh, I I do think that it's not that hard for people to start learning um, some basic 
ways to think a little more scientifically. And then, yeah. and everyone has a zillion different jobs and occupations. So, so once we have like, you know, um, everyone from like a, a grocery clerk to, um, uh, to like a bus driver to, you know, uh, someone in the shipping department driving a forklift thinking scientific people are just going to have novel insights because of the environment that they're in and i i think that they're in in a, some ideal world those insights will get back to the science um community i think it's great well. i think uh you know carl sagan he wrote this book uh, a great book called the demon haunted world where he just shows the the effect of having a population uh, that doesn't uh, think scientifically and effectively is suffering for it. They're, they're, they're haunted by demons and, mm -hmm. and scientific reasoning kind of allows you to move past it. Uh, so I, I think it's what, well, while still as Richard Dawkins argues uh, still, I, in my mind, you still retain the sense of wonder about life. I mean, I, yeah. I think, the, the fact that, that I'm sort of a subscriber to selfish genes and all that theory, uh, I don't think I, I see life as any less fascinating. I think just the opposite. I just, I'm just constantly amazed by all of this. And, and it, yeah. it doesn't reduce in any bit the, the creativity or the, or the sense of wonder about life. Not one bit. Reality is amazing. Yeah, yeah and, yes. and I mean, I, I think uh, I think a lot of uh, a lot of what um, genetics, especially, can teach us is is just how much of life is this bottom up uh, emergence that happens yeah. that has a lot more explanatory power than the top down the um, kind of <laughs> assigning lots of agency to things where right. it doesn't belong and theory of mind stuff that gets a little bit out of control and and uh and you know we, we tend to like give a uh, give chaos a personality <laughs> and stuff in, yeah. in terms of that's uh, true whether it's the universe or weather or a, or a virus that you know you can't physically see and yeah um, i mean I, I think a lot of the traditions that, that humans have come up with though are are, are really useful and, and we have to be careful sort of not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. yeah the, I, the, sen the sense of community yeah that that religions give that that's real and that's powerful it's important we have to we have to figure out that it's like a real challenge of, of uh in our lifetimes is how society kind of keeps all the good stuff but but also brings in the you know the new understanding yeah yeah i i agree i i was only uh, like making the point just because it, it, your your idea of like taking out the wonder and mystery like whew, yeah. it's not i i i i see you know it's obviously easier to see mistakes in other people and i, I do the same thing I'm, I'm sure all of the time but um people will uh, some people I, I feel like that are so attached to something that they consider the mystery sometimes view um, science and, and just new information as, as uh, you know, intruding on their, on their territory, yeah. <laughs> you know, like this is my territory. And boy, if I, I can assure anybody there, there's, 
never going to be a shortage of mystery. Mystery is an unlimited supply. Whatever mystery you think is important to you, it, it can be proved wrong. You can let go of it. There will be 10 times the mystery laying behind it that you have no idea about. Absolutely. We're under no shortage of mystery. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so uh, um, as I as I let you go, do you want to steer people to like uh, um, like one to three podcast episodes? If you, if, you know, a brand new listener, what you'd oh, like people yeah. to check out? Check out the new one with Steven Strogatz. Yeah. Uh, there's one ruthless simplification. Yeah, ruthless simplification. That one we just had a couple of weeks ago. There's one with Michael Strevens, uh, who's a philosopher, and he talks about his book, uh, The Knowledge Machine. There's one with uh, Oded Rechavi. You you must follow him on Twitter. This guy's hysterical. Um, uh, I don't he, actually. Oh, you have to check him out. He's the the great meme maker. I'm sure you've you've come across him. He's uh, uh, everywhere, it seems. And he studies uh, transgenerational inheritance that's uh, non-genetic, and it's it's beautiful. Uh, yeah, those would be a great starting point. We also, awesome. you know, Mar- Martin Lurcher and I, we also write editorials about it. So there's a whole kind of, in addition to the podcast, there's also the the written sort of theoretical side that if people go uh, if you just google night science website they can find it fantastic i I just followed odette on uh twitter i wasn't on there already so no you won't regret it awesome well thank you so much for joining me um atia sorry about that uh anyway you're a fantastic guest as as usual this is a really great conversation and uh yeah i hope it's like a saturday night live where a guest can like come back several maybe more than twice oh yeah i mean if you any any anytime you like if you have a a new like book come out or anything like that let me know any oh yeah we talked about your book last time we did that yeah what's your book again uh the society of genes the society of genes that's right oh my gosh i i forgot i must have given you a copy right because you were in my office i must have given you a copy i think so so maybe <laughs> I'm not sure. It was, I know I didn't pandemic. read it. It's a, it's a, <laughs> but, but it's I, a blur. But I should. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a zillion books everywhere. I'm, as I'm sure you do as well. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, well, we'll check it out. Check out the last podcast to hear about uh, about that book. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you more next week. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Uh, this is I, I've really, in in case you haven't um, been able to tell, uh, I've I've been um, trying to uh, reach out to other science communicators uh, this year and other people that that uh, do public, you know, have their own science podcasts, things like this, uh, because, uh, I just want people to be more and more inspired to learn more about science. There's only so much, uh, so many subjects I can cover. Everyone does things differently too. And so I know 
when I listen to podcasts or books or whatever else, I'm in different moods at different times. So I, I want to uh, introduce you guys to other people that do um, more science communication just to uh, turn more people on to science. That's all. I think the world would be a better place if that were the case. If you agree and you want to support what I do, please go to patreon.com slash Shane Moss. This show is funded 100% by your Patreon support. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, not exactly crushing it over there on Patreon. We're, we're paying the bills, um, but man, podcasting is such uh, incredibly competitive th- th- figuring out what algorithm does what and how to get more viewers and blah, 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 and then get people to pitch in. It's a whole thing. It's, it is what it is. It's all part of the business. Uh, I, and uh, I've, I've been thrilled with the quality of this show, especially um, uh, especially uh, as we've transitioned from COVID and doing things remotely and, and improving um, some of the quality standards and in, in learning in terms of the um, actual video and audio quality stuff and problem solving, but also just the ability to uh, get guests from wherever at any time uh, has has been a fun thing to explore and I felt like I feel like I've grown a bit as a host so if you want to help support the continued growth of this show and me and just opportunities to keep on improving and and doing more and upgrading and all of that go to patreon.com slash Shane Moss. Next week's episode, I think, is going to be a One Health initiative episode. We have a few in the bank and there's a couple, there's always a few moving pieces that uh, you guys don't necessarily need to know about. All of that is to say, I don't know what episode is next week, but I'm sure it'll be a good one. And I have... um, 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 uh, I, I'm so excited putting a lot of energy right now into planning our mind under festival. So go to mindunderpod.com. Like I said, if you will check out the St. Patrick's day mind under matter episode, we get into the basics of some of the stuff that I said at the beginning of this and, uh, sign up with your email there. We're going to be adding, we want to, you know, we, we don't have, we didn't have all of the marketing materials and everything um, together because we just wanted it to emerge naturally. So we're going to have a poster and all those various things um, eventually, but it's not something that we're putting out to the public. We're not going to be like running social media ads and things like that, trying to find people that have never heard of our show to come just because the festival's cool. We want specifically people from within the community, people that are going to want to show up and, uh, you know, meet other people that are uh, inquisitive like yourselves. And, uh, and, uh, and by the way, some of the feedback I've gotten so far is because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a 
uh, heady person and an introvert a, a little bit outside of this and uh, an introspective type person. And because of that, I, I seemingly attract uh, some similar like-minded people. If you happen to be kind of an introverted person and and the idea of going to a festival and stuff isn't normally your thing and you're worried you won't have people to talk to, it's going to be pretty easy to meet people. We're, we're already planning things to uh, help uh, uh, facilitate that. But just in terms of having a bunch of awesome artists there sitting there live painting that you can just go up uh, to talk to who will be thrilled to talk anyone's ear off about their work and talk about their background and anything else. There's going to be a bunch of stuff like that. There's going to be lots and lots of opportunity. In fact, it's the whole point um, is, is to create a fun environment to engage in um, cool conversations and meet interesting people. Uh, We're not going to have like big name bands or musicians or any, anything like that. We'll have, we'll have music. Uh, to me, it's not going to be the highlight of, of the festival. I think a lot of the day activities and hanging out in the water and getting to know one another and doing some live podcasts and, uh, sharing ideas and stuff is what I look forward to the most. So we'll have music and, uh, partying and all that stuff at night, but we're also going to make sure like all of the tents and camping is far away from that for the, for the people that don't like staying up late and aren't as interested in that kind of thing. You'll get kind of get to choose your own adventure. Um, and we'll be able to answer more questions soon. If you're on Patreon, you have access to my discord. Um, and if you aren't on my Patreon and you don't have money for the Patreon, but you want access to my discord, just, uh, write me on, on, uh, uh, the here we are site maybe, um, or, or just maybe when you fill in, here's what you do when you, when you go to the mind under, uh, pod email and, uh, you, you submit your email address, ask for a discord link. If you happen to not be on Patreon and want to get on discord, cause we have a separate channel. Don't worry if you don't know what discord is. It, it's pretty intuitive, but there's a whole channel. Um, just like, like a social media feed in a way, but just completely dedicated to the festival. So you can see other people are lining up, um, carpooling and sorting out who's bringing what and, and, uh, different camping gear that people will have available and stuff like that. So, so you can potentially borrow, uh, some stuff like that. If you're flying in and, and do things on the cheap, uh, there's, there's people, uh, one, one person's coming from Australia and wants to spend more time in the United States. So they're finding just like other people in the community to go and like potentially crash with or go on some fun adventures with outside of, uh, our, uh, festival that weekend. Um, and so there's just a bunch of stuff like that within the community, uh, going on and it's not overwhelming. It's a, it's a small, uh, community on discord. This isn't the biggest podcast in the world. And discord is also kind of a small communal thing on top of that. So, uh, so it, it won't take that long to catch up 
on a lot of things and you don't need to be worried about um uh not having your questions answered or whatever because it's a pretty it's a pretty cool small community that uh the ones that are on there that are active keep up with uh, uh with m- much of the posts that are happening um uh it, you know through the week and so um yeah you know just over explaining everything but i've already been getting a a lot of questions about it and people are excited so i'll be filling in more details as things go on those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorites <laughs>